Hey there and welcome to Soul Church. Our prayer is that this message encourages you wherever you may be in life. You know, we've been hearing so many stories about what God is doing in people's lives and we'd love to hear yours. So take a second and send your story to stories at soulchurch.com. Thanks again for joining us today and we hope that you enjoy the message. God bless. Well, we are honored today to have Reverend Will Vanderhart here from HTB, Holy Trinity Brompton. And Will spoke a phenomenal message in the first service. And if you try and take notes, you'll give up halfway through it because it's so good. Because every time he drops some gold, he drops more gold and then more gold. And so we've got the podcast up as well, so you can re-listen to it. But really honored to have Will here today. I first met Will eight years ago and um, a gathering, and it was great to connect with him then and to reconnect with him again. Those in the first service are picking up what that meant. Uh, but it really is. He, he, he speaks into the whole area of mental health and grief and sorrow and really did help our church in the first service. I know he's going to help you in this service. Tonight, he's going to be speaking... Uh, through Q&A, and we're going to be asking him questions, and it's going to be uh, interactive with the congregation, so you can text in questions to a number on the screen and ask him questions around grief, sorrow, mental health, and so a little bit different tonight from this morning, but uh, let's take nothing away from what's about to happen today. So we'll thank you for, uh, you know, sacrificing time away from family, your own church, to be here. We love you. We love your pastors, your vicars, Nikki and Pippa, amazing. By the way, Nikki Gumbel's going to be with us towards the end of the year as well. So we just found out that this week. And Jay John's going to be with us next month as well. So we've got some great speakers coming through. But Will, great to have you here today, straight out of Brompton. Come on, why don't you stand to your feet and give Will Vanderhart a huge welcome to Soul Church. so much. What a great welcome. Do take your seats, um, please. It's a huge privilege for me to be up here with you at Soul Church. Amazing uh, seeing what God is doing amongst you. And I want to bring some uh, more strength today to you. I love coming into these kind of buildings. Like, it was fantastic walking in the door today. It's like, oh, this is, this is the Anglican vicar's dream in terms of a building. This is like absolutely epic. Hey, by the way, um, when I got my train last night at 7.30 p.m. out of Liverpool Street, I sat down and my number, my seat number was 28 in carriage K, and, uh, and, and there was a sticker on my, uh, on my number. It just had that, that cross equals heart. <laughs> I, I just, you know, I looked around the car. I didn't know about that thing that you do here. And I looked around the carriage. I didn't see a single other sticker in my carriage. And my seat, reserved seat, seat number 28K, it had this sticker on it, cross equals heart. I, I, I texted my wife. I'm like, you won't believe this. What, what, you know, what encouragement. Then I find out it's you guys sticking these stickers. I think there's some guy following me around st- sticking up spiritual encouragement as I'm on my way. And then I get to my hotel room last night, and there's uh, one of these beautiful art prints where they paint on a, on a page of a dictionary. And my dictionary started with Holy Cross and then Holy Spirit. And it had the whole uh, you know, definition of the Holy Spirit in my hotel room right there behind Behind a, you know, on, on a painting of a, of a um, seahorse. So God is definitely in the house. It's super encouraging. And thinking about buildings, when I took over my first church as a vicar, which was actually in Harrow in northwest London, it was a real classic Anglican building. Huge, huge, great building, you know, really ornate, um, towering great ceiling. But you could tell it was an Anglican building just if you came in with a blindfold, because every Anglican building has this smell we call Anglican damp. 
I don't know if you know, if you know this smell. It's like a sweet, sour kind of damp smell specific to Anglican churches. I've actually been to churches in Australia and New Zealand that are Anglican. They have the same smell. It's remarkable. We must export it as a brand. Um, but my church was slightly neglected. And when I took over, I took a load of the leaders away. And we're going to have some spiritual time seeking the Lord for what spiritual things he was going to do in the years ahead. And all these groups went out and they prayed and they came back with a list but on top of every single group's list was new toilets. I was like, wow, is this really the spiritual ambition of this group of leaders, that new toilets is the main thing we're going to be going for in the years ahead? But the thing was, the problem with this Anglican damp smell was it really put people off. And I threw a whole heap of money at renovating this church, sorting out the toilets, dealing with the plumbing, making it all super nice, redecorating from the floor upwards to try and say, hey, we want to be a welcoming space. But after about six months of, of leading there, I remember sitting down in my office and I just got a really strong waft of Anglican damp. And I thought, really, have I spent like tons of cash, all this effort and energy to turn this place around only for this problem to have not gone away? It was about a month later, I was walking around the church. The church was so big, we had a, a medical center, a GP surgery in the back end of the building. And um, I was walking around the building, and there was this small blue wooden door at the very back of the building by the, by the medical practice. And I just had this Holy Spirit moment. I think It was like, I'm going to go in that door today. It was just like a decision in my heart. So I went up to see the maintenance man. I said, hey, you know that blue door at the back of the church? I, I want to go in there today. And it's a classic British work money. He's a sucking his teeth, like, oh, I don't think you want to do that. Oh, I don't think anyone's been in there for a really long time. Oh, that would cause a lot of problems. Anyway, I convinced him to get me the key, and a couple of hours later, he turned up with a set of keys. And armed with a camera phone torch and a stick, I kind of came in the door like Indiana Jones, like wafting back a hundred years' worth of cobwebs. And I was all set to kind of go in wherever this door led. And I went about three steps and then I called back to the guy, how deep is this supposed to go? And he said, oh, I think it's pretty deep. Apart from today, it wasn't deep at all because there was just brassy, stinking water lapping at the third step. Anyway, I went back to the office, called up the local fire brigade. I said, oh, hello, uh, it's the, the new vicar here from um, the, the church down the road. Um, I, I was wondering if you could come round because our, um, our basement is flooded. And uh, we really need to... I didn't tell them it was flooded in 1902. I just said it was flooded. <laughs> And they came round in a, in, a, in a massive fire engine. They stuck a load of pipes down into this basement, and they began pumping. About three and a half, four hours later, 3,000 gallons of water later, it revealed 15 stairs and two massive rooms underground. And in it was all the sort of stuff from the scouts from the 19, you know, 1901, 1902, all rusted back. It was like going into the hull of the Titanic. Anyway, we stripped it all out, got rid of all the stuff, put in a pump, to make sure it didn't flood again, put in loads of heaters and lighting. And then a couple of months later, a young guy came to me and said, he said, Will, is there anywhere in the church I can work out? Um, I just got married and my wife's really fed up with having heavy weights in the sitting room. And I was like, oh yeah, I know exactly where we can put you. So we got this young guy to set up a massive weights rig down in the basement. And every morning at 6 a.m., he was walk working out down there with a load of guys, listening to worship music, getting really strong. I think it's... That, that's what I think God wants to do in our hearts. Because no matter how we dress up above the waterline, if our foundations are flooded, we're never going to get well. Actually, you know, this basement of shame in our lives, it drives us to constantly redecorate above ground. 
If you want transformation in 2019, it's not because you do a better job on floor one. It's because you do a deal with your foundations. You get right down into those foundations. I could have, I could have dressed up the church for the next 10 years. I could have done a thousand repainting projects, but nothing would have got away from the smell of Anglican damp if I hadn't pumped out the basement first. You know, we want to drain that shame basement and replace it with an integrity gym where you can get strong, where the Lord is being worshipped every day. Whatever's happening above ground, it's only a mirror of what's happening below ground. And actually, you know, the transformation in your life has to address those things at the very foundation. And I think um, shame is this incredibly powerful phenomenon which distorts everything else above the waterline. Um, it's hard to describe shame, but I'd like to think about shame like a conductor of an orchestra. If you think about an orchestra, I could say, you know, what, what is the most powerful instrument in an orchestra? Some of you are saying, well, I think it's probably the timpani drums at the back, or massive cymbals, or, you know, maybe it's the double bass or the first violin. But actually, the most powerful instrument in an orchestra is the only one that doesn't make any noise. It's the baton. You know, the conductor can take any instrument and distort its sound. It can distort the sound of the whole orchestra and make a, you know, a, a major chord, a minor one. It can turn a, a sweet sound bitter. And if actually shame is controlling the emotional orchestra of your heart and mind, then every one of your emotions is going to be distorted to create a discordant sound. The trouble is, it's easy to say, I feel angry, or I feel sad, or I feel happy. But it's very hard to say, I feel shame. You know, no one says, oh, I f how do you feel today? Oh, I feel shame. You know, oh, how are you doing? Oh, I, I feel shame. No, you don't ever say, I feel shame. You might say, I feel guilt. Uh, guilt is a negative feeling about things we've done. But shame is a negative feeling about who we are. Uh, Sylvan um, Tompkins argues that Shame in something called the primacy of effect is not actually an emotion at all. It's an affect which affects every other one of the emotions in our emotional repertoire. The University of Glasgow convincingly argues that there's actually only four basic emotions. Happy, fear, surprise, anger, disgust, and sadness. Sounds like six, but it's actually four. And, and they mirror the kind of nature of an orchestra. Woodwind, brass, strings, and percussion. Now, if shame is conducting your emotional orchestra, they are all going to make a negative sound. Shame has the power to distort a happy moment into a sad one. It has the power to distort a moment of pride into a moment of horror. It has the, the power to, to transform a moment of love into a, uh, you know, a moment of lust. Shame has the power to distort good things and make them bad. And yet shame is so rarely addressed in our lives. We're often working above the waterline when what we need to do is to address the shame basement and begin to pump it out. And that's our work today. If you're sitting there and thinking, I don't think I have a problem with shame, you are not alone. Because it's so hard for us emotionally to connect with this idea, we're thinking, I don't know what this feels like. That's because it's not making a noise of its own. But what if it's distorting everything else to make a discordant noise elsewhere? The best way I can describe the feeling of shame is the feeling of fraudulence. Many people just say, I feel like a fraud. Now, they might not use that exact terminology, but what they're saying is, I feel that if people really knew me or got close to me, they would reject me. Or I'm really conscious that I'm worried about what people think about me because I think if they found out what I'm really like, 
they would probably abandon me. I meet husbands who think that their wives would leave them if they knew what they really like. I meet wives who think their husbands would leave them if they knew what they really like. I, I meet parents who think their children would leave them if they think they really like. This is not just the, the business of leading. It's not the business of business. It's the business of life. We live this life hoping that we can, we can kind of outwit shame by redecorating from the ground floor upwards. But as long as we're redecorating, we're not dealing with the core issues that are actually limiting and impacting our lives and the lives of those around us. Importantly for us as a church, shame is limiting and impacting the growth of our churches. Because God's called us to be transformed, to really show up, to be an authentic community in a world which is increasingly dislocated and doesn't know that it belongs. I was so moved when I walked in here this morning and I saw the sign, Welcome Home. You know, my new book, The Power of Belonging, the first chapter is called Defining Home. Because if you don't know where you're going to, you're never going to get there. But home is the best way to understand the destination that God's created for us. We have a heavenly home that is our prior identity from the moment that we're created in God's image. Once we've received Christ, our home is secure. We know where we're going. And we're living in the light of that homestead right now. Guilt is an I did statement, but shame is an I am statement. And the more we let it infiltrate our lives, the more it transforms how we believe about ourselves. We say, I'm defective, I'm damaged, I'm broken, I'm a mistake, I'm flawed, I'm dirty, I'm soiled, I'm ugly, I'm impure, I'm filthy, I'm disgusting, I'm I'm incompetent, I'm not good enough, I'm inept, ineffectual, useless, I'm unwanted, unloved, unappreciated, uncherished, I'm weak, small, puny, impotent, feeble, bad, awful, dreadful, evil, despicable, I'm pitiful, contemptible, miserable, insignificant, I'm nothing, I'm worthless, I'm invisible, unnoticed, I'm empty. If you said any of that about yourself, if that's what you believe about yourself, the likelihood is that the power of shame is playing havoc in your life right now. But God doesn't want to leave you that way. He wants to liberate you to a new sort of belonging. And it's important that you know that it's not like the congregational experience that actually I'm not talking from an experience here as a leader. I was telling John, we turned up at this Windsor gathering a few years ago. The first year it ran, I received this invitation. It said, you know, dear, we'd like to invite you to Windsor Castle to a leader's retreat for young leaders. At the first moment I read it, I, was, I felt pride. I felt, oh, yeah, wow, this is, I feel really honored. But about two seconds after reading it, I thought, oh, it's not really for people like me. Uh, and I started feeling bad. I, I, I thought maybe there was a D-list and somehow everyone else had sort of, you know, dropped out. I said to my wife, love, I've, I've got this amazing invitation to go to Windsor Castle to like, spend some time on a retreat. She said, oh, finally, they've realized you've got something useful to say. That was about it. My wife's very practical. <laughs> but I went away thinking, oh, yeah, but I, oh, am I really supposed to be there? And so I, I conspired to arrive a couple of hours early. And I kind of nervously tottered up to the gate and said to the guard, oh, oh, excuse me. Oh, I, oh, I think I'm supposed to be at a sort of a event here, maybe. You know, am I on the list? Like he was going to find out that I'm not on the list and send me home early. But it was, it was better not to be humiliated in front of everyone else. And he sort of went through the list because I'm a W and a V. I got quite anxious by the time he got through it. Oh, I'm sure I'm not going to be let in. I'm sure they're not going to let me in. And then finally he said, oh, yeah, you are on the list, but you're a bit early. I was like, oh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of go in anyway. And then I went in, and, you know, but the feeling of fraudulence didn't leave me. I still felt like I shouldn't really be there. And actually, I kind of hung around waiting to be ejected until the first session. And I remember the first session standing at the back, and there was sort of, you know, Martin Smith and Tim Hughes having a little jam around the piano, and like handsome John standing there looking suave and cool. And, you know, 
it's all, go, it's all going on. And I'm thinking, what on earth am I doing here? Like, this is not for people like me. And I stood at the back feeling like a fraud until Pete Gregg, who was leading the retreat, said, guys and girls, just to be really clear, there's probably not a single leader in the room who doesn't feel like a fraud. So let's just get over ourselves and start worshipping Jesus. At least that's a start. I remember looking around and other leaders were nodding their heads. I thought, no, I thought I had a problem with shame. Now I think I'm hallucinating. <laughs> but you know, this is an experience that's common to all. This power, this, the power to feel like you're not really included, that you don't really belong. But if soul church is going to be transformed, it's because you know you're at home here, that you believe that you're at home here. And if the kingdom of God is going to be transforming this world, it's because you know you belong to God. And actually, this power to undo your leadership, it actually is going to be undone today. You know, as much as there's this feeling of fraudulence, the, the, the psychology behind our desire to belong is in the theory called belongingness. Baumeister and Lewis' 1995 study, The Need to Belong, proposes that a need to belong is a fundamental human motivation, that human beings have a pervasive drive to form and maintain a minimum quality of lasting, positive, and significant interpersonal relationships. In short, you're created for connection. You're designed to belong. God created a world and he made your home in it. That actually the work of God is, is, is made known in this value of belongingness. That we all have a hunger to belong. If you've been in education, you'll know all about attachment theory. But attachment theory always seems to start at point B. And actually I've always wondered, but why do I want to attach? But belongingness theory is the theory of point A. I want to attach because I know I need to belong. Like, we all long to belong, and our world is devoid of belonging. Everyone's looking at a way of belonging, and the way they tend to do that is to dress up above ground. You know, everyone's Instagram profile looks like they're Justin Bieber or Ariana Grande because everyone wants to fit in because they believe someone else does fit in. So if they look like them and sound like them and walk like them and talk them, maybe everyone will be fooled. The trouble with fake it to make it culture is once you've made it, you're still faking it. It doesn't, it's not like you ever get there to the top and go, hey guys, I fade it to make it, so oh, let me just reveal who I actually am and now you can really accept me. It doesn't work like that. I've worked with senior leaders in business and beyond who, who say at the top of their game, I still feel like a fraud. I still feel like if people really knew, knew me, they'd never follow me, let alone let me lead. You know, and that's a problem because you've been created to belong in your leadership. I keep hearing Christian narratives around become the best version of yourself. I hate that. What do you mean by the best version of myself? There is only one version, or there should be, and that's me. That's the me that God created. So stop looking for a better version of you and start looking at you, the you that God has called and the you that God's created. We've got to get away from this idea that there are versions of ourselves because actually there's only one Lord and one Lord has made one of you. And that's it. So be transformed, but know that you have a hunger to belong. This is innate value within you. Belongingness value is valuable. I think it's, the, it's a way of psychology understanding that God-shaped hole in our hearts, that longing for home that is within us all. I long to know that I feel a home in this world that God's created. You know, so much of that uh, challenge and shame and the struggle to belong is, is born out in our childhood. Um, actually, Charles Darwin said that the only thing, I don't agree with him, but the only thing that distinguishes humans from other animals is the experience of shame. 
because actually animals don't feel shame. But most notably, what he noticed was that when babies were born, babies would turn their face away from unknown faces with shyness. If you've had a baby, I've got three little babies, they've all done that. So if I'm holding them, they look at me and think, oh, you're great. But then if someone else comes like, oh, I love your baby, and then they quickly they turn their face away because they feel ashamed. Now, that turning of the face away is completely unique. Giraffes don't come out of the womb and suddenly turn their face away from other giraffes. Hippopotamuses don't come out and go, oh no, there's another ugly hippopotamus, and move away. They, they look at one another. And, and actually, it's that innate sense of belonging. I belong to you as a parent. That makes us distinct in the world. But poor attachment can lead to shame taking root. You might remember the story of Moses um, here having a difficult attachment experience. Um, his mum you know, rescued him from the forthcoming purge of, of the Hebrews. The Egyptians were going to kill the sons. And she puts him in a basket and floats him out on the River Nile. And he's collected here by the, the uh, princess of Egypt. And he's grown up in the courts of the Egyptians. I was imagining a conversation between um, Moses and his therapist in Egyptian courts around sort of, you know, 1400 AD. It would have gone something like this. Oh, yes, do, do come in, Moses. Um, do take a seat. Tissues, tissues are there if you need them. Um, so how was your week? Oh, oh yes, we, we're talking about your mother again, are we? Oh, oh yes, yes, that must have been very hard for you. Yes, yes, she did. She did put you in a wicker basket. Yes, and and, and yes, you're right. She she did float you out on a on a river filled with crocodiles. <laughs> yes, that was very. That must have been very hard for you, Moses. Yes, yes, you, you well, fortunately, yes, you were rescued by an Egyptian princess. Yes, no, you, well, you're you're right. That must have been confusing. I mean, being rescued by an Egyptian princess when they're killing all of your brothers and sisters, that must have been very difficult for you. Oh, yes, your mother did, yes, your mother did make another appearance. Oh, yes, she's very loving, your mother. Oh, no, you're right. Yes, no, she did say she was going to be a handmaiden and that actually she wasn't your mother. That must have been quite complicated and, and confusing for you, Moses. <laughs> yes, no, yes, no, she, she never did say that she was your mother. No, yes, indeed, you did grow up as an Egyptian. I'm, Moses, this session's not going real well. Maybe we should pick it up again next week. Um, you know, it's confusing. Like, life is confusing. Growing up is confusing. And there are probably innumerable reasons why we might all feel like we don't really belong. But if you feel that you belong, it doesn't necessarily mean you don't belong. You know, the enemy has a fantastic way of weaving these lies around our hearts that leave us believing that actually we don't belong anywhere. Someone said to me this morning, I just always felt my whole life that I don't belong anywhere. But God says, you belong here, my child. You belong to me. You belong to me. But some of us, it takes us an age to get to that place where we can accept that that's true. For Moses, he ends up actually as a, as a shepherd in Midian. He has three identities, Moses. Moses, the Hebrew. Moses the Egyptian, and now Moses the Midian. You can see he's got an identity problem. He doesn't know where he belongs. He tries three different tribal groups in the same area. That's pretty unusual. And here he is, married to a Midianite girl as a shepherd in the Midian desert. And it's 40 years of self-exile because the shame within Moses turned to rage within Moses. You know how I said shame distorts the narrative of our emotions? Shame turned Moses' anger into murder. Moses kills the Egyptian slave driver, and then he exiles himself in shame into the desert of Midian. And God calls him in Exodus chapter 3, verse 2, back into Egypt, to the place of his humiliation, where he's to set the people free. But Moses' first response is, God, I can't go back because Pharaoh will kill me, which would have been my first response. Moses' first response is, God, I can't go back. What if they don't believe that you sent me? 
Moses is not afraid of death. Moses is afraid of humiliation. And you know, the fact is that shame believes in us that we will be humiliated. People say, oh, I got on stage and I just died. Do you know what that means? I died of humiliation. It's a greater death than a physical death. In the olden days, people were terrified of the stocks. We think now, people chucking rotten eggs and cabbage at you. They said, I'd rather die than go into the stocks. Why? Because I'm being publicly humiliated. Public shamings in public punishments were stopped in the 18th century because they were believed to be too barbaric. Public shaming is barbaric. Our society shames people all the time. Now we just do it online. Moses is a classic example of a shame-bound leader. He's there facing down the burning bush and you know, God's saying, go back. But he's saying, how can I go back? The thing is, if he doesn't face his true origins of belonging, he'll live his life in exile. And for many of us, we live our lives in an exile, a public exile. We're there, but we're not really there. No one really knows us. We're just hiding in plain sight. And at this point, God says to Moses, what is in your hand? A staff. He replies, this is in Exodus 4.2. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. And Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Now, I don't know if you've done the Bear Grylls Survival School, but you'll know that there's two ways to deal with snakes. The best is that you run away because actually you can't get injured if you run away from a snake. The next most sensible way of controlling a snake is, is by using a stick, holding its head and then picking it up, keeping your thumb tightly lodged in the back of its head so it can't move its neck, turn around and bite you. Now, as a shepherd in Midian, Moses would have had the best experience of being a snake handler. He's defended his own sheep from snakes for 40 years. He knows all about snakes. And it's not like there were anti-venoms in 1400 BC. So if you deal with it badly, you're basically dead. But the Lord says to him, reach out and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This is the most counterintuitive instruction in the whole of Scripture. Now, I say to my kids all the time, do not pick up any animals by their tail. A puppy, kitten, donkey, horse, cow, don't pick up any animals by the tail. It's going to end badly. But if you pick up a snake by the tail in the desert, it's going to turn its face towards you, and it's going to bite you. And if it bites you, you're surely going to die. But here Moses, you know, he was courageous. He was obedient. And he, he reached down and, and he picks up this snake. And it turns back to a staff in his hands. The thing about shame, it makes you always want to run away from it. You know, go to a different city. Start afresh over there. It'd be great. Go to a different country. Start afresh over there. No one will know you. It'll be great. Apart from it's not great because there's still shame under the basement. Uh, or, hey, don't run away, just change churches. You know, when you do something bad, you don't like people, you think people are talking about you, then run away from Soul Church, go somewhere else where people don't know you. Or just reinvent yourself, you know, new year, new style. Just be different, look different, but hide. You know, we are always running and hiding from shame. But if we pick up the snake of shame, we risk humiliation. But it's only in the risk that we actually are empowered and we overcome. Here, this snake which threatened the life of Moses, became the strength by which he would lead the people. This snake, which had led him to exile, was the same snake which would become the staff with which he would part the seas and the whole people would be free. 
You know, it's amazing how God can transform your story. These areas of hiding, of suffering, and of embarrassment are those things that can exclude us from the very power we need to live this life in 2019. You want to see transformation come, you've got to risk humiliation and pick up the snake of really showing up. It's not like it's the first time we've seen the snake. The snake way back in Genesis uh, chapter 3, we see he's provoking Adam and Eve in this encounter, sowing mistrust into the promises of God. You know, way back when the the snake was saying, oh, did God really say? Did God really say that? Do you want to be more powerful? Do you want to, you know, have greater credibility in society? If you eat this apple, you will. You know, just before that, it said Adam and Eve were naked, and yet they were not ashamed. As soon as they eat that apple, it says they were ashamed, and they exiled themselves. They hid themselves in the woods, and they made coverings for themselves. You know, this snake of shame has always been working to separate you from the belongingness of God. It's always been saying, you don't really belong. The story of God's grace, it's a nice story, but it's just not for you. You can't volunteer in Soul Church because you're not good enough. You can come and you know, keep on the seats warm on a Sunday, but you can't get involved in the ministries here because it's not for bad people like you. That's what this snake is saying today. But God is saying, I love you. You're my child. You belong to me. You have got not just a seat, you've got a throne in this room. This is a place for you. This is your family. Start showing up to the family to which you belong. You know, Brené Brown says that shame, blame, disrespect, and the withholding of affection damage the roots from which love can grow. But equally, when we can overcome shame, we can experience love in new ways. The weird thing about shame is that, that we're always projecting a false self. We, we, we don't believe that we can be loved, so we block others' attempts to love us. If you want to see revolution in your marriage in 2019, then challenge shame in your basement. Because suddenly you are able to receive the love that others want to actually give you. They want you to feel love. They want you to know love. But it's shame that says, I can't receive this. It's not for people like me. If we challenge shame, then we can begin this journey of healing, that we can accept our limitations. We can actually be less defensive. It's amazing how shame-bound leaders are so defensive. If you ever say, oh, you know, that little issue, you could deal with that. I can't deal with that. That's not an issue. They're straight back at you with defensiveness because defensiveness says, I can't have any limitations or vulnerabilities. Perfectionism has a field day where shame is concerned. We're always defending ourselves. Oh my goodness, there can't be anything possibly wrong with me. When we can accept our limitations and be more vulnerable, we say, yeah, please, give me some instruction. I want to be transformed. There's loads of things I need to do better in my life. We can welcome our uniqueness. That means that we can bring the genuine gifts that God has given us to the table. We can say, look, I'm different to you, and that's okay. Maybe I've got something to bring to this church in 2019. And also we can lead out of our vulnerability. We don't need to be a pastiche of ourselves anymore. We can just show up and say, actually, this is a struggle. You see, in our Christian testimonies, everyone says, 20 years ago, I was an addict, but now I'm, I'm totally free. It's a great story. But what about saying, for 20 years, I've struggled with addiction, and I'm walking free every day. Let's be real about our testimonies. Let's, let's live it out today. Let's recognize the struggles of our lives because God is in that. That's what family is all about, being authentic and really showing up. One of the great challenges we face is that within us is what's called the sociometer. As much as we have a belongingness value, we also have a measuring stick for how accepted or rejected we tend to be. The sociometer operates at a non-conscious level. That means that we, we can, we're not conscious that we're doing it. And it scans the societal environment say the church, for any indication that one's relational value was low or declining. Now, to understand this, unconsciously, we're constantly looking for clues that we're being rejected. So if you look slightly sleepy right now or slightly, you know, unengaged, I'll be thinking, 
Flip, this message isn't going very well. Oh no, everyone hates it. They're all going to leave in a minute. My sociometer's probably busy doing that right now. Uh, I met a woman in my church. She was like one of our super volunteers. She suddenly went off grid. And after two weeks, I thought, well, this is quite a long holiday. After four weeks, I was thinking, where's this woman gone? So I reached out on an email. I said, hey, I'm missing you at church. You know, something gone on. I got a really short return. And then I sent her another one saying, hey, why don't we meet for a coffee and have a chat? So she came to my office. I said, hey, great to see you. Something's obviously gone on. You're obviously upset. Let's have a chat about it. And I said, what happened? She said, you know, I just feel so rejected. And I was like, oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. What, what happened? She said, we wouldn't believe this. I was like, well, you know, try me. And she was like, well, during the peace, which is our Anglican greeting, you know, you stand up and say, the peace of the Lord be with you, and you shake hands. She said, that happened, and someone just totally blanked me, shook the hand of the person next to me, and then just turned around and sat down. I was like, wow, no way. I can't believe that happened to you. That's terrible. Who did that? She said to me, you did. <laughs> I was like, are you serious? I'm so sorry. I didn't even see you. She said, exactly. <laughs> I was like, oh. You know, it was, she was so wounded. I honestly hadn't seen her. But she'd interpreted me shaking the hand of the person next to her as a clear sign that she didn't belong. Her sociometer was distorted to read the clues of rejection even when rejection did not exist. Again, the enemy is having a field day with our perception of rejection. We are taking slights on all levels. So-and-so didn't do this. So-and-so gave me this look. So-and-so doesn't really like me. So-and-so's probably talking about me. Wow, hear the devil fueling the narrative? Shame, isolation, discontent. Ultimately, you leave the church on the basis of a whole lot of lies. Lies that are propagated by what's below the surface. You know, we can build this false self and we can end up on stage looking great and pretty, making all the right noises, telling all the right stories, being fake vulnerable, offering people things that like sound vulnerable, but actually we have got no interest in sharing who we really are. And, and living that life behind the curtain, you know, it's so painful. We can't receive any critique because actually it's not us who's getting criticized. It's just the false self that we've propagated to other people to believe in. And we can never receive any praise either because actually they're only praising the false self and we always believe that if they really knew who we really were, we wouldn't receive any praise at all. Living behind the false self is not living at all. God's not called us not to show up. He's called us to be his hands and feet in the world. Now, Jesus didn't send a false self forward. He came, God incarnate. He became the sacrifice for our sake. He, he went to the cross for our sake, flesh and blood. Beginning of John's Gospel, it said, the word became flesh and moved into our neighborhood. Like, this is real. This is visceral. And this is really living. You know, if we live behind a false self, we also generate a, a shadow mission. And our shadow mission seeks to kind of throw us a few bones of, of kind of esteem and, and well-being. And the, the shadow mission, you know, is always there to sort of, you know, try and make me feel a bit better about myself. I could preach, you know, an incredible gospel-centered sermon to this group over here. You'd laugh, you'd cry. Many of you would become Christians for the first time. Many of you would become Christians again. It'd be so good in my imagination. Um, but over here, I could preach the same gospel with the same outcomes, but over here I'm preaching that Will van der Hart is funny. You know, it's the same outworking, but it's a completely different mission. Over here, I'm seeking to fulfill my true mission as someone who's called to communicate the gospel. But over here, I'm just seeking to prop up my weak self-image. You know, so many of our shadow missions are just a distortion of our false selves. And you know, Five degrees off course isn't a lot. 
But it, after 10 years, it's a whole lot. Now, Moses started out, he should have been the shepherd of the lost sheep of Israel, but he became a shepherd of sheep in Midian. It's like the same thing. Is it not the same thing? Shepherd and shepherd, both are shepherds, both are leading sheep. It's not the same thing at all. Because ultimately, after 40 years, he was miles away from the mission that God had called him to. And actually, this work of overcoming shame is about bringing the true mission that you have in your life back into alignment with what God's purposes are for your life. Now, if we don't identify the fact that actually we're trying to support this fragile and broken self-image, then actually we're going to live by it. And no one at the top celebrates the life of the fraud. Ultimately, they're saying, did you show up? You know, we're never happier than when our true mission and our true self are co-joined. When you are truly doing what God has called you to do as you, you will never, ever look back. You know, that feeling of saying, here I am, I belong here. In all of my vulnerabilities and weaknesses, I belong here. To do anything less is to live this less than life. You know, when um, I was getting married to my wife, Lou, and she entered a competition in Brides Magazine to win a, a honeymoon, but I didn't know that. I just got a call on my mobile phone, she didn't have one at the time, saying, could they speak to her? So I ha- handed the phone over to her, and she's like jumping around in the street going, we've won, we've won! And I was like, oh, what have we won? And she was like, we've won a holiday! And I was like, oh, it's probably a timeshare, you know. <laughs> I've heard that before, you know, oh, we've won, we've won, you know, what do you have to do to give money up front? It's a scam. I'm, I'm naturally suspicious. She was like, no, we've really won. I entered a competition. Turns out we've won seven nights, a luxury honeymoon to one of the nicest islands in the Maldives. And uh, we had flights and we had accommodation on a little house on stilts over the Indian Ocean. The only drawback was that it was breakfast only. And we were students at the time, so I called up the island and I said, you know, have you got any shops on your island? They were like, oh, sir, yes, we've got some shops. We have a luxury goods store, sir. And, you know, we've got, you know, we've got a kind of, you know, this luxury spa and you can buy some treatments. I was like, no, if you've got like a Kmart or sort of, you know, Tesco's (laughs) Express. It was like, oh, no, we've got five luxury restaurants. You know, you come and enjoy. I was like, how expensive are they? And he was like, oh, it starts from sort of $80 a head upwards. I was like, okay, that's like a month's living for us. So we we were savvy, so we took two roll-ons, one with our clothes. I mean, what do you need for the Maldives? Like all of your clothes, you know, you just need a kind of sarong and a pair of shorts. And the next one we packed with pot noodles and Nutrigrain bars. <laughs> so we rolled up at this resort. We're like rolling on like this, feeling super smug. You know, we did, we pushed back, but it was like there was no, there was no doing it. We pushed back. So we had this amazing week. It was film star week. We couldn't believe it. Just like absolutely. So I go to the breakfast canteen. I wander in. Literally, I'm starting like English breakfast, Malay breakfast, continental French, Japanese, German. Then I'm having a few of these lassies, which are about 2,000 calories in all of them, drinking them down. I'm stuffing my pockets with croissants. And I'm, I'm like walking out like this. And you could see these Maldivian waiters looking at me like, flip. Where does he put that stuff? <laughs> they thought I was coming back for breakfast and dinner. Dinner time, I'm sitting there, glass-fronted Bandahar on the Indian Ocean, eating cheeky chow mein. My wife's eating a spicy beef pot noodle, 70p from Kmart, like this. I tell you, amazing, tastes amazing. Nutrigrain bar at lunchtime. We go the whole week. Every day, you could see them nudging each other at breakfast bar. Here he's coming. The, the, the thin guy's coming. I'm like, in. Like... Whoa, I'm like piling up like this. I'm like, whoa, they're like, this guy is incredible. He's got like a metabolism of like five racehorses. <laughs> Every evening, little cheeky chow mein, spicy beef, 70p from Tesco's, that's it. 
the end of the week, my wife goes, oh, you better go and check the bill, because, you know, we bought a couple of things on room service. So I went to check the bill, go up to the, the, you know, the concierge, they print off a letter, and they put it in a little gold envelope for you. So I was like, well, that's, you know, that in itself looks like it's worth five pounds. So I'm like, I undo the letter, and there's nothing on it. I'm like, well, there's no, there was like one water sports activity, that was it. I was like, where's all the food, you know, the food we, we ordered? He said, um, he said, uh, so, you, what do you mean? You're, you're all inclusive. <laughs> he said, he said uh, you can have anything you want from any of our five luxury restaurants. Have you tried our specialist seafood restaurant, sir? You can choose your own lobster, Thermidor, about $370 a head. I go back to my wife. She's still lying on a sun lounger. I'm like white as a sheet. I'm like, she's like, how expensive was it? I'm like going, that is the problem. It was not expensive at all. Some of us here are living on bed and breakfast with God. But we're actually, we're full board Christians. No, God doesn't do bed and breakfast Christianity. He doesn't invite you to the table in order that you can just sit at the table and eat pot noodles. He's invited you to the table to dine with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You know, the invitation of the King is that you dine fully and freely, and that's that you know you belong there. You're not an imposter at that table. You belong at the table of the king. And he wants you to eat that full board experience. And, and that means overcoming shame. You know, at the end of this story, uh, Jesus ultimately is the answer. That We see that snake over and over again. In Numbers 21.9, we see that the people are being challenged by another snake in the desert. They've taken their eyes off the Lord. And now they're being bitten by the snake and they're dying. And Moses petitions the Lord. And the Lord says, to raise up a brass snake on a pole in order that any person who looks at it might be healed. And, you know, it's a remarkable moment, again, of overcoming shame and turning their eyes back to the Lord. But then remarkably, in John 3.14, it says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You know, in this story of shame, God overcomes like he overcame, he wants to restore the home of the garden at the end of the story. Because the first home is our last home. The home in the garden is our home in heaven. And God overcomes the shame snake in the garden of Eden. He overcomes him at the fire of the burning bush. He overcomes him again in the desert. And he overcomes him ultimately on the cross. That Jesus becomes the snake on the pole in order that our shame might be overcome and our righteousness might be restored. That is belonging. God is saying, you belong. I have taken your shame and I have restored your righteousness. So today the enemy might be stealing that sense of belonging, that sense of home, but Christ is restoring it. And we're going to pray right now. We'd love you just to close your eyes where you are, maybe just open your hands. If you want to experience what that looks like, then just invite God right now. Jesus, we want to acknowledge we feel ashamed. Shame so often steals our joy in Christian living. We believe that we don't belong, but we know that you've spoken life over our lives. When you died on the cross, you became the snake on the pole, and we look to you, Jesus, 
you've taken the penalty and you've restored us to righteousness. If you are sitting here, maybe you're here for the first time, maybe you're watching online and, and you just feel that sense of condemnation. You feel like there's stuff in your life that separates you from God. Just say, Jesus, I'm so sorry for all those things in my life that separate me from you. I accept your absolute eternal sacrifice. I receive the righteousness of God in my life because of the sacrifice of Jesus. You're my savior. You're my king. I want to eat at your table. Come, Holy Spirit. Would you just come right now and touch every person as they pray that prayer that they might know that they're children of God, that they belong in your family. Sometimes it's a really helpful thing just to say, yeah, that's, that's me. And if that's you right now, just while eyes are closed and heads bowed, you maybe just want to put your hand up and say, yeah, that's, that's, my, that's my prayer. Thank you. That's my prayer. Thank you. Thank you. If you've prayed that prayer today, thank you. And if you prayed that online, maybe just it's a great opportunity today if you're in the house just to talk to one of the leaders the prayer leaders we'd love to chat to you love to give you a bible at the end and if you're online we'd love you just to reach out to us we want to reach back out to you this week get connected and, and help you into the family of the church so father we want to pray for all of us that we would know freedom from shame this week that we would know the fullness of what it is to be your children and we pray that in every sphere of our lives we would know that we belong we pray for the courage to show up despite our fears of being humiliated. We pray we'd show up as you showed up on the cross. And we pray for your grace, for your mercy, and for your love to flow through our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Come on, let's thank Will van der Hart. Wow. Yeah, I think we should stand and honour him. That was a phenomenal word. Thank you. If you prayed that first prayer, we've got a gift for you. It's a Bible. It says the word on the front because it's the word of life. It will bring life and strength and direction to you every day. And If you lifted up your hand... Hopefully one of our team would have seen you and will approach you and give you a Bible. If they don't, as you, as you leave the auditorium, there'll be some Bible pickup points. So please grab a Bible. It's a gift from us to you and encourage you to live your life with strength and not in shame. This is what the Bible does. We also got a little light bulb because it signifies today you've moved from darkness to glorious light. And that's what, when shame is removed from your life, the light bulb comes on, the light comes on. And so I want to encourage you. We have a big wall out there. It says Jesus is life. And literally 600 plus people have done this since we did it a couple of years ago. And it, it really does. It's, a, it's, it's kind of a, a, new, a new moment, a start, a catalyst for you to, to move forward. And so I encourage you. You can take part in that as well. So well done. Come on, won't we thank everyone who's made that decision today? I also want to also want to uh, highlight Will van der Hart's latest book, The Power of Belonging. Some of this he's touched on today. This hasn't even been released yet in the shops, 
And uh, we've only got a few copies left because we nearly sold out in the first in the first service. But Will will be out there in the resource area. And if you want your book signed, he'll be out there. So please grab a copy of this, Discovering the Confidence to Lead with Vulnerability. Some of the things he was talking about. And I know, I know I've, I've got a copy of this. I'm going to read it. And really, I think there's a, a great, there's a freshness about this book already. I've been flicking through it. And thanks for being vulnerable, you know, talking about some of the things you've talked about. And tonight, he's going to be opening up a little bit more about his own struggles of anxiety and things he's been through as a leader. So I think tonight it's going to be a significant night. I want to encourage you, first of all, to come back tonight and secondly, bring someone. You know, there's so many people in our city who are struggling with mental health, with grief, with loss. And tonight we're going to tackle some more of those questions. So I want to encourage you to come back out five o'clock. It's going to be a little bit different. It's going to be an interactive session. So come out. Let's, let's, let's hear Will's heart on some of this. And uh, I know it's going to help and strengthen us. Come on, why don't we just sing one more time? Let's worship. Thanks again for tuning in. And if you said the salvation prayer today, we'd love for you to email connecttofaith at soulchurch.com so we can talk to you a little bit more about this incredible decision that you've just made. Yeah, you know, and if at any point in the service you felt moved to give towards any of our local or global initiatives, then head to soulchurch.com and click on the giving at the top of the page. Thanks again for joining us today, and we hope to see you again soon. God bless.